Across Australia and New Zealand, over 100,000 epidurals performed per annum. So huge numbers of epidurals being performed on a yearly basis. Um, but what's interesting is that despite that popularity, when you actually look at the number of research studies which have been done in relation to epidural analgesia, there's not a huge number. Welcome to episode 35 of the Ops and Gyne Quick Care Podcast. Um, so this is a talk that I was asked to give at the Sydney ASM. Was anybody here at the Sydney ASM? And so you've seen this, Chris? Didn't come to my talk, gee. <laughs> yeah, this is for the obstetric SIG. Um, and... Um, so the topic that they asked me to talk on was epidural analgesia, the best mix. Um, and we thought we'd present it today because some of you may be aware that we're changing our patient-controlled epidural analgesia protocols over. Um, and uh, so the key thing is that we're introducing um, mandatory bolusing, essentially. So we're taking out our background continuous infusions and introducing mandatory bolusing. Um, so this talk will actually give you the background to that and we can discuss at the end of the talk um, how we're going to go about doing things in terms of what we're changing over to. Um, so there'll be some things in this talk which um, you'll all know, there's a few things that you might not know basically, um, but as part of this talk there's a few things which are quite general. Um, no conflicts of interest to declare. Um, so to begin with childbirth is obviously painful. Um, for women it's one of the most painful things that they can go through um, so sorry Erica <laughs> um, uh, so when you look at some of the pain scars that you've got there basically labor pain is similar to the amputation of a digit without local anesthetic um, essentially so neuraxial analgesia is the most efficacious option that we've got available to women in labor now it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the best option for all mothers, but if we're talking about what is the most effective option to uh, remove labour pain, it's epidural analgesia. Um, and it's incredibly popular. So in Australia and New Zealand, over 50% of mothers will have epidural analgesia. Um, and so Ali and I have just looked at our King Eddie figures. We run at about 46, 47% of women um, who deliver here uh, having an epidural, so essentially women who labour. Um, and across Australia and New Zealand, over 100,000 epidurals performed per annum. So huge numbers of epidurals being performed on a yearly basis. Um, but what's interesting is that despite that popularity, when you actually look at the number of research studies which have been done in relation to epidural analgesia, there's not a huge number. Um, and when I say a huge number, when you consider the number of epidurals that are performed, the research base to back that up is actually quite limited. Um, and it uh, goes to, in a way, the underrepresentation of women in research. Um, and so a lot of clinical trials are focused on men and not necessarily focused on women. It's only recently that a number of journals have mandated that uh, you actually declare the sex of the participants that are in your clinical trial. So you can actually see the gender balance which are occurring in clinical trials. Um, and when you compare it to other clinical conditions that we've got out there, the research base behind what we do in epidural analgesia is actually quite skewed. 
So we have what we call significant equipoise. Why is it important? It's important because we are in a very much a consumer focused specialty. Uh, mothers expect the highest quality of care to be provided to them um, and epidural analgesia is a controversial aspect of that care which is being provided to women. Um, controversial on a number of levels but particularly in the midwifery versus medical models of how we look after women. Um, so it's often seen as one intervention that leads to additional interventions for women in labour. And when you look at the literature and you look at what we do, there is a number of things that epidural analgesia may have a significant impact on and some of those things can adversely affect uh, childbirth essentially. So maternal motor blockade, maternal hypotension, duration of labour, mode of delivery, neonatal outcomes, maternal fever as well as staff workload. In terms of the scope of this talk, just going to very quickly go over labour pain itself um, and then look at what is the best epidural mix per se. Um, so we're going to look at the delivery methods, uh, pharmacology, PCEA options and then some other additives that we can look at using. Um, what I'm not going to talk about but happy to talk about in the discussion side of things is how we initiate epidural analgesia, so the combined spinal versus traditional um, and options. So one slide on labour pain. Um, um, labour pain is unique and interesting on a few levels. Um, the first one is that, um, I think as we all know, the intensity of the pain increases as labour progresses. Um, but what's that actually reflected in is that you need an increased dose of your local anaesthetic as your labour progresses. So if you're trying to achieve analgesia, say at 8 centimetres as opposed to 3 centimetres, you need a different dose of local anaesthetic. Uh, and also as your labour progresses, the duration of action of those local anaesthetics decreases as well. Uh, it's a dynamic process uh, as labour progresses. Um, so your first stage of labour, T10 to L1, your second stage of labour, your S2 to S4 nerve roots. Um, so uh, depending on the speed of your labour, um, you may have all of those nerves being innovated at the same time. Um, or sometimes you do have that quite clear transition period from your first to your second stage and a change in your, uh, in your pain sensations at those time points. Um, complicating things is that there's multiple maternal and fetal factors that influence uh, the progress of labour and the pain experienced. So nulliparous women tend to have longer and more painful labours. The fetal position, uh, so OP babies. Um, now our first baby was an OP baby and my wife will tell you how uncomfortable an OP baby can be. Uh, so we know that an occipito-posterior position tends to lead to a longer and more painful labour. And it's also got some interesting features on its own, so you tend to get more back pain with an OP presentation. Um, so often that's a clue when a woman is describing a lot of back pain uh, in labour that they might be in an OP position. Uh, and also spontaneous versus induced labour. Um, so augmentation of labour tends to result in uh, increased pain scores during labour. Uh, and that's certainly something that we notice, um, particularly in the private setting with a large number of inductions of labour, um, how rapidly women can go from basically having no contractions to being established and being quite distressed in a very short period of time. So that's the one slide on labour pain. Um, so the take home message from that really is that the analgesia that we provide needs to be flexible to meet the changing demands of labour as it progresses essentially. So we have to have a degree of flexibility in our regimens that we provide to women. 
So what is the best epidural mix? And uh, I talk about bell curves quite a lot when uh, teaching the trainees. Um, and I think philosophically, thinking about how you practice medicine in terms of what you're doing, thinking about where you place on a bell curve compared to your peers is quite an interesting way of looking at where you are. Um, and what I often say to trainees is that when you come out uh, and start practicing, you really want to be in around about this middle to front portion of the bell curve basically. You don't want to be doing things right out here because people are going to start to question what you're doing and you don't want to be behind the, uh, on that descending portion on the left hand side of that bell curve essentially. Um, but the aim really with most of the things that we do is to be on the right hand side of that bell curve. Now there's certain things that we do at this hospital which would place us in this particular area up here. I think our coagulation management for example, in obstetric hemorrhage and our use of Rotem puts us really at the leading edge of what's happening worldwide in terms of uh, obstetric anesthesia. Um, so as you go down that bell curve, really as I said, what you want to do is to avoid being on that descending portion of the bell curve. Um, and what I'll do is I'll uh, have a look at where we are at the moment at King Eddie uh, and then we'll scrutinise where we are on that bell curve and where we're going to head to. So a number of years ago, we switched from a uh, disposable uh, single patient use device for patient controlled epidural analgesia, analgesia in labour to um, the CAD solace pump that you uh, are all familiar with for now. Um, and interestingly, when that actually happened, um, the uh, catalyst for the change that we had was that the Go Medical device that we were using, um, we got a six week notification that there was going to be a major manufacturing problem associated with it and we were going to lose supply of it for a significant period of time. Um, and so we had to come up with a contingency plan in a very, very short space of time. Um, so essentially we only had six weeks to completely revamp the way that we were doing epidural analgesia in the hospital. Um, but it was also quite timely because the Go medical devices that we were using were not a secure patient device um, so it was quite easy to access the medications which were in those devices um, both from a patient and a healthcare provider point of view um, and also not being electronic they didn't really give us any degree of flexibility in terms of how we were actually managing those patients. Um, so with a six week window basically there was a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, we'd actually already made initial inquiries into the CAD solace pump which was just coming onto the market in Australia at that point in time. Um, and so we were the first customer here in WA to start running with the CAD uh, device. And what we chose, and literally Mike Pake and myself were sitting down at this table coming up with a protocol that we were going to use for the pumps at that time. Um, so we kept our local anaesthetic and our additive as it was uh, in terms of the bupivacaine 0.065%, 2.5 micrograms per mil of fentanyl. And then we had to select what parameters we were going to use for the PCEA. Um, and this was quite a significant change. And so we changed to a larger bolus volume of 10 mils, a 20 minute lockout. Um, and we added a background infusion of 5 mils per hour. Okay. Um, and so that's what we selected at that particular point in time. Um, and so what we'll go through now is go through some of the data behind where we're at with all of this and, uh, and what it shows today. Um, and put it under scrutiny and look at where we're going to head to basically with our epidural pain relief now. So first question, what is the best drug delivery technique? Um, 
and most of you are probably aware that giving your epidural drugs via a bolus is better than giving it via a continuous infusion. Uh, and so this is really the seminal uh, bit of data that showed this, which was back in 1999 um, in anesthesia analgesia. And it just showed the spread of epidural medications when you use a continuous infusion versus a bolus technique. Um, Patient-controlled epidural analgesia was actually first described by David Gambling back in 1988. Um, so it's actually been around for a long time. Um, but interesting, its uptake in certain settings uh, has been relatively uh, difficult. Uh, and there's still hospitals here in West Australia that don't use patient-controlled epidural analgesia for childbirth. Um, but PCEA is now really best practice in terms of what we do. Uh, it's associated with increased maternal satisfaction, improved second-stage analgesia, decreased local anaesthetic consumption, decreased clinician interventions, uh, and decreased motor blockade. Um, so essentially, at this point in time, patient-controlled bolus techniques are what we should be doing. In terms of the local anaesthetic that you should be using in your solutions, um, it really doesn't matter. Um, so it really doesn't matter if you're using bupivacaine versus ropivacaine. So we use bupivacaine here. Um, most hospitals in WA are using bupivacaine, but certainly over east, lots of hospitals are using ropivacaine. The key issue is uh, that you get your concentration correct. Um, because there's a potency difference between bupivacaine and ropivacaine, which wasn't appreciated when the drugs were first or when ropivacaine was first marketed, um, you've got to get the concentration of your two drugs to be uh, equipotent, essentially, from that point of view. Um, so you do need a higher concentration of ropivacaine to be equipotent with bupivacaine, basically. Uh, and that's been well shown in a number of studies. Um, and so that's the, the key thing, essentially, in terms of the drugs that you're using, is that you use the most appropriate concentration. Um, and so concentration is important, um, and low concentration solutions are associated with improved maternal outcomes. Um, so essentially we don't require high concentration solutions most of the time in labour. So for the majority of women we don't need to be using high concentrations. Uh, and by using low concentrations essentially we allow higher volumes to be administered and enhancing epidural spread. Um, and again that's been shown in a number of clinical studies whereby your ED50 for example with bupivacaine is decreased when you use a lower concentration solution um, but the same massive drug essentially being delivered from that point of view. Uh, what is low concentration? Um, essentially bupivacaine less than 0.1%, so 0.065% in terms of what we use here um, is really typical of a low concentration bupivacaine solution. Uh, and less than 0.17% uh, ropivacaine is what's been uh, documented as a low concentration ropivacaine solution. So the standard available 0.2% ropivacaine solution um, that's out there is not considered a low concentration solution for labour analgesia. So there's certainly a number of hospitals over east that have been using 0.2% ropivacaine um, and a lot of those hospitals uh, are trying to access 0.1% ropivacaine to use for patient-controlled epidural analgesia in labour. Um, in terms of how strong is the benefit, um, the, uh, sorry, how strong is the evidence, the evidence is actually uh, very good from a meta-analysis point of view essentially. So um, low concentration solutions depend compared to high concentration solutions, decreased assisted deliveries, shorter second stages, decreased urinary retention, less local anaesthetic consumption, 
less motor block, greater ambulation, no changes in caesarean delivery. Um, so that's good level one evidence basically that we should be using low concentration solutions. In terms of adding an opioid, um, interestingly it's, um, it's not as well studied from that point of view, but um, it's pretty clear that we should be adding an opioid. In terms of the two opioids that have, that have been studied, it's really fentanyl and sufentanyl which have been looked at. Um, but there's not a lot of evidence to say what the appropriate concentration should be in terms of the amount of fentanyl that you should be adding. Uh, but certainly associated with improved analgesia, decreased local anaesthetic block, decreased motor block and decreased hypotension. Um, but those side effects of nausea and pruritus that you get with opioids. Um, so essentially we should be adding an opioid, it's just a little bit unclear exactly what concentration of opioid that we should be adding to our solutions. In terms of bolus volume and lockout intervals, and this is where things start to get slightly trickier to, uh, to figure out with our epidural uh, cocktails that we have. There is a huge number of studies which are out there looking at um, combinations and permutations of bolus volumes and lockout intervals. Um, so it becomes very difficult to actually interpret uh, what's the best way to go about doing things. Um, really no strong evidence to favour one regimen over another and this is Brendan Carvello uh, from Stanford um, basically stating there's a suggestion that a high volume long lockout intervals provide better labour analgesia. But the definitive work on this hasn't been done and the definitive work really requires quite a unique study design with thousands of patients uh, to elucidate that. Um, so pretty much when we sat down here and came up with these cocktails, um, we looked at what Brendan Carvalho has said and uh, that's how we selected our 10 mil 20 minute lockout uh, essentially at that point in time. Um, there is some data to show how using a higher volume uh, of solution in your improves your spread. Um, so again this is relatively old now, uh, just under 20 years old um, from Hogan and Anesthesiology but just showing contrast spread with 0.4 mils, 4 mils and 10 mils of solution injected into your epidural space. So you can see with that 10 mil uh, bolus that you actually get um, a lot better spread of solution in your epidural space. Um, what's actually interesting when we look at our um, infusion device you press that bolus button on your epidural pump, what infusion rate, how long do you think it takes to get that 10 mil bolus into your patient? So if you're giving a 10 mil bolus basically, it's actually two minutes to... Um, and then probably getting to the crux of a few things to talk about today, um, our background administration techniques in terms of what we're doing. So if we look at patient controlled epidural analgesia sort of evolution in terms of where we're heading, really started off without using a background solution of epidural drugs. Um, then a continuous infusion uh, was added and there's some data to um, potentially support that. Um, and where things are heading is to this mandatory bolusing technique and then really the future, the smart pumps um, that are almost actually commercially available at this point in time, um, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so whether you should use a continuous infusion or not is actually quite controversial. Um, the ASA don't really provide you with any clear guidance. This is the American Society, not the Australian Society. Um, high rate infusions appear more efficacious than lower rate infusions. Um, and there are some documented benefits but also some downsides to using continuous infusions. Um, and so again this is level one evidence in terms of meta-analysis. 
Um, the good side, decreased physician interventions, decreased um, maternal PCEA requests, um, but bad things basically, increased local anaesthetic consumption, increased instrumental deliveries and increased duration of second stage. Um, and one question that people often ask us is what were the outcomes for us when we changed from our old PCEA technique to our new technique with the CAD Solace? Um, and unfortunately, at that point in time, um, doing an audit of our baseline practice was the last thing on our mind because we had such a short window between when we had to implement the new changes setting up an audit was not something that we'd actually considered. So we didn't actually do a retrospective, sorry, a prospective audit on this. Now we have done retrospective work, which um, shows that we did good things when we changed over to the new regimen compared to the old uh, technique. But certain things like assessment of bromage scores and that in labor um, is actually quite difficult to do retrospectively looking back at the notes. It's not as well done as what we would like it to be. Um, so really that needs to be looked at in a uh, prospective way um, rather than what we've been able to do retrospectively with this. Now mandatory bolusing techniques um, are sort of where things are at at the moment with background administration techniques. Um, so essentially what happens is um, a little bit like this essentially and that over time um, you program your pump to give a bolus of medication at a certain time interval basically. Um, and so you may set your bolus to be delivered every 30 minutes in the background uh, and you set a volume of that solution to be administered um, and on top of that you have your patient controlled uh, boluses as well. Now the CAD solus pump, um, what that essentially does is it's quite smart in that it uh, will use a lockout time basically so if it gives a mandatory bolus it will then lock it out through the standard PCEA interval before it will allow a patient controlled bolus. If the patient's just given themselves a bolus it applies the same lockout time to its mandatory bolus basically. Um, so essentially you won't be able to uh, stack your programmed bolus with your PCEA bolus as well. Um, while we're just on the point of this graph the other thing um, just so that you're aware of when we set these pumps up. Um, so this will be in our protocols, but it won't be on the stickers, so it's not actually anything that you'll need to worry about. Is that when the midwife connects the pump and press start, we have a delay interval before the first program interval programmed bolus is going to be delivered. Um, now we've selected a delay interval of 30 minutes. The reason for that is that we figure that it probably takes them about 30 minutes after you've put the epidural in for them to get the pump set up, ready to go, connected and press start. Uh, and so that first program bolus will then come in about 30 minutes later, so at around about that hour mark, which is when we would expect that first bit of analgesia to be starting to wear off basically. Um, so that's why we've selected a delay of 30 minutes uh, with the new, the new protocols which are coming through. patient can press it before and then it just pushes back that mandatory bolus as such. Um, so these bolus background techniques have been around for actually quite some time um, from a research point of view but not actually commercially available for uh, particularly long and a lot of it has been led by Alex Sia and the team over in Singapore um, and again uh, showing some benefits over a continuous infusion. Um, 
And I go back to this graph again. It basically, even though the evidence for what for using a mandatory bolus technique may be relatively limited, it just makes sense that when we say patient-controlled approaches with a bolus technique is better than a continuous infusion, certainly delivering the background medications via a bolus technique is almost certainly going to be better than giving it as a continuous infusion as well, just because of that better spread that you get of medications. So one of the complaints that we had from the midwives when we switched over to the new protocol was that they thought they saw a lot more motor block in women. Um, and we hypothesized that that motor block was because of that continuous infusion that was, uh, that was going on um, with probably just a very small concentrated uh, area of local anesthetics sitting there in the epidural space. Um, so program mandatory bolus techniques, pretty much if you've got the capabilities, it's really uh, where things should be heading. Um, there is some evidence out there to support it. So there is a meta-analysis, but the trials that are in use are quite uh, heterogeneous. So um, there's certainly benefits in terms of local anaesthetic consumptions, maternal satisfaction, duration of second stage. Um, but you've got to be very careful when you actually look at the studies which have been done because not all of them necessarily relate to the practice that you've got in your institution. Um, so certainly a lot of these studies don't necessarily relate to how we would do things here at King Eddie. Um, this study here is probably about the closest that you get, even though it's still not quite the same as what we do. Um, but a 0.1% ropivacaine fentanyl solution, 5 mil PCA bolus with a 10 minute lockout and then either a continuous infusion at 5 mils an hour or a bolus um, at 60 minutes. Um, and essentially showing with that lower local anaesthetic consumption, increased time to first analgesic request um, and improved maternal satisfaction. Um, so why did we not opt for this sort of approach when we introduced it here at King Eddie? Essentially when we introduced the CAD Solus the CAD, um, there was no commercially available system to run a mandatory bolusing technique at that point in time. So it was not available commercially worldwide. So this is how they have done research studies into it um, up until that point in time. So on the left there you've got two gem stars basically um, and one running as patient controlled, one running as that mandatory bolus basically. Um, and so that was how it was done in one study. This is one of the computer controlled devices that they used in Singapore uh, for their clinical trials. And it's only recently that the CAD Solus has actually had that functionality built into it in terms of software updates to actually be able to do this. Um, so when we introduced it, we did not have that capability essentially. Where things are potentially heading, um, and I was just talking to the Singapore people at the, uh, at the actual meeting uh, in Sydney, is they have uh, essentially developed their own algorithm for epidural analgesia management um, in what they call a smart um, epidural pump, basically. And what this actually does is it looks at uh, the number of patient bolus requests, basically, over that previous hour. Um, and it changes the automated bolus uh, frequency for the following hour depending on what's happened over the previous hour basically. Um, so it's not actually rocket science in terms of what they're doing, it's just a uh, really what we would call a response adaptive device. Um, so if a patient's pressing it more often, it gives them more uh, drug over the next hour basically. Um, but they've done some large studies on this and they've got their pump is now commercially available. Um, certainly in Singapore um, and 
They asked us at the conference whether we just wanted to have a play with it and try it here on some of our patients as well, just to see how it works. Now, other additives to think about in terms of your epidural uh, cocktail. Um, clonidine is an interesting one. Um, so, decrease in local anaesthetic consumptions, decrease in PCEA requirements and improve maternal satisfaction. Um, but you certainly do see some maternal hypotension uh, associated with its use. And there is some data suggesting a potential increase in instrumental deliveries. Uh, in terms of optimal dosing, um, if you're using it as a bolus, the bolus dose down the epidural is around 60 to 75 micrograms. Um, that seems to be the sweet spot. In terms of PCEA regimens, around about 1 to 1 1.5 micrograms per mil. So the way to do that here is to take 150 microgram ampule of clonidine and add it to your CAD cassette. Now we actually have that on the stickers here for our PCEA devices, um, but it's very rarely done. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of the change to the CADs that we are getting better analgesia. Certainly with the Go Medicals we used to use more clonidine, particularly for ladies with an OP presentation, um, but it seems to be we're not using as much clonidine um, for routine labour analgesia these days. Um, neostigmine is an interesting one um, and there's actually a lot of data out there on neostigmine um, in terms of its benefits for um, labour analgesia. It's probably one of the most well-studied epidural additives out there. Um, and so one of the things when you're looking at additives to be using Neuraxley is all the safety data that goes along with it. And neostigmine has actually had a huge body of work done on its neurotoxicity and safety. Um, now in terms of the clinical studies which have been done, a lot of it has been done by Mark Vanderbilt and colleagues um, showing benefits from using neostigmine essentially with, uh, with um, epidural uh, analgesia for labour. Um, and now Mark's done two studies on this. Um, this is one of the studies that he did basically and this is a study that Mike and I actually wanted to do and this is combined spinal epidural analgesia and then adding clonidine and neostigmine to your epidural um, basically so establish analgesia and then give them a bolus of neostigmine and clonidine down the epidural um, and looking at, uh, at outcomes from that point onwards basically. Um, and essentially what you get is you can get a dramatic increase in, um, so the top one, sorry, that's the two clinical trials there superimposed on the same slide. Um, but the top one there, duration to request for additional analgesia, going from 95 minutes to 144 minutes by adding basically. Um, and so the dose, uh, if you are considering doing that, um, is... Uh, 500 mics of neostigmine, so 0.2 of a mil and uh, 0.4 of a mil of clonidine, so that's 60 mics of clonidine, um, so uh, added um, to your epidural solution. So um, quite interesting and essentially pretty hard to criticise because there is such good safety data for both those medications which are out there these days. Um, so certainly something that uh, you can look at using. Talking to Mark Vanderbilt at the conference, um, they tend to use it more in women who uh, have patchy epidurals and are just not getting adequate pain relief from what looks like an otherwise well-functioning epidural. Hi everyone, uh, Roger Browning here. Apologies Nolan for interrupting your great um, 
talk on this subject, um, but I have been asked by um, uh, the department and yourself to briefly interrupt your talk just to clarify a quick point regarding the use of epidural neostigmine for labour analgesia. I just want to um, emphasise that although, um, as Nolan has mentioned, there is increasing um, body of research showing that this may be a very useful technique um, in labour analgesia, at the present time the truth is that it is actually um, not, util not used in any departments or any hospitals in um, Australia New Zealand as far as we are aware. And because of this we really don't want people to, take, to get the um, wrong idea and to go out on the basis of uh, hearing this discussion and start using it in their everyday practice. I think it is more um, just uh, something that is of interest and in watch this space. Um, it may come into um, clinical practice uh, in the following years. Okay, thanks for that and uh, continue with the talk. So how did our protocol rate at that point in time? Uh, sorry, my little emojis haven't translated from the Mac onto the PC. Um, but certainly the Cadsilus pump um, is a good option um, and it's certainly probably the most popular option throughout Australia now for epidural analgesia. The local anaesthetic that we use is good, the opioid is good, clonidine, um, it's good that we've got it available. We probably underutilize it a little bit. The volus volume seems appropriate and as I said it's difficult to, um, to really uh, recommend exactly what bolus volume you should be using. Uh, the lockout interval again seems appropriate. Um, but the background continuous infusion in this day and age um, certainly isn't uh, best practice from that point of view. Um, so I'll rate that a 7 out of 10. It probably still sits pretty well on that bell curve in terms of practice. Um, but we really want to head to the right a little bit more by introducing uh, mandatory bolus techniques with our epidural cocktails essentially. Um, now in terms of the summary then, um, so we need to have a flexible arrangement for our labour analgesia. Um, PCEA techniques are considered current best practice. Addition of a background epidural infusion has some potential benefits, um, but certainly a bolus technique is likely to be better than a continuous infusion technique. Um, and epidural clonidine and neostigmine um, are likely to be underutilised and may have advantages in certain situations. So that was the talk from Sydney. Um, in terms of what I thought I might do is we can um, have a bit of a discussion, take some questions, just talk about what we're going to do here at King Eddie. Um, so uh, we just locked things in pretty much at the consultant meeting a couple of weeks ago. So we are going to keep our bolus volume and lockout interval the same as what we've got at the moment. Um, but we're going to be changing to a um, it's called with the CAD Solus, a programmed intermittent epidural bolus, um, PIEB. Um, so we're going to be changing to an 8ml bolus with a 45 minute interval on it, essentially. Um, so 45 minutes tends to be about the sweet spot that people have found. 60 minutes tends to, um, from those that are using it, seems to be a little bit too long. Um, 30 minutes might be a little bit short and getting the volume right, um, that 8ml seems to be about the sweet spot. Um, so that's what we're going to be changing over to. Um, the difficulties is saying what we want to do is very straightforward. Um, the implementation of it is quite tricky because we need to change the stickers, which is not too hard to change the stickers over. But we've got pumps with various different firmwares within the hospital. Those pumps have to be taken out of circulation, their firmware is updated, 
then all the programming in them updated to get to uh, to add the PIB regimens into them um, and because they're on different firmwares the different firmwares require different software to do all the programming so it's quite a complex job to actually go ahead and do that so from our point of view it's very straightforward we say what we want it to do but all the back-end stuff takes quite a lot of time because um, I think we've got about 60 pumps is it Ali? We've got a lot um, so trying to figure out which ones that we're going to pull out of circulation to put down in delivery suite and that is um, just a bit of a logistical nightmare um, not so much for us but particularly for Biomed um, we're tearing their hair out about how this is all going to get managed but um, we will get there um, it would be nice to get it right the first time um, I think um, what we've selected um, should work nicely for us we've done a baseline audit we'll be doing a repeat audit after implementation basically so we'll give it some time to embed and then we'll do another audit um, but certainly um, it would be nice to have a really flexible system but because of all the logistical issues with reprogramming over these pumps we want to try and get it right the first time so and we finished pretty much right on time so questions Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, uh, org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>